Welcome to the Vaccination Station. My name is Dave, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Seth Kalishman. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to virtually be here. Let's start by getting to know you. Can you tell me three things about yourself that you think the audience would find interesting? Well, um, one thing about myself is that I am a clinical psychologist uh, at the University of Connecticut, and I've dedicated my entire career to HIV behavioral research. Uh, so our work is really focused on uh, prevention and treatment and care of people living with HIV. I'm pretty focused on that. So it's a uh, maybe a second thing about me is I'm kind of a one-trick pony. I, I think I know quite a bit about AIDS behavioral research uh, and HIV and uh, more generally, perhaps. Um, and then some things in its uh, in, in the periphery, but the further away you get, the less I know. Uh, it's all I've really focused on my entire career. So, um, uh, and then I guess a third thing uh, is, uh, uh, I don't know that there's anything else that's interesting about me. <laughs> uh, and uh, that's really very much where my um, my my life's work has been focused. Well, uh, thank you for that. Um, perhaps you can clarify something. You mentioned behavioral research. What is behavioral research? What does, what does that actually mean in practical terms? Yeah. So um, behavioral research is a is a very broad um, area, and it would encompass psychology, psychiatry, anthropology, sociology, economics, often is considered a social science. And so uh, social and behavioral scientists are of many different disciplines. But what they all share in common is their focus on human behavior in its social context. Uh, and then people work in multiple different areas. Uh, uh, I kind of belong to a, a, a a community of researchers that focus on community health. Uh, and my specific focus is on one really disease and that's HIV infection. But um, the, my work isn't that different from people that focus on the social and behavioral aspects of diabetes or the social and behavioral aspects of, um, of uh, cardiovascular disease. You can kind of name any disease and there's going to be some human behavior and social context um, aspect to it. And so we work within that sort of domain. We work very carefully and closely with medical phys with physicians and, and, uh, and medical providers who treat patients. Some behavioral uh, focused fields like psychology and psychiatry interface closely with with like nursing and 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 physicians and and may see patients themselves in a in a clinical setting but the the uh, it, we're really we're really falling more closely than medicine under the rubric of public health and global health right so for example with uh with things like diabetes and, and AIDS, because they do have a, definitely have a behavioral component and they have a lifestyle component, what you're doing then is you're bringing all of these different disciplines together um, to bring their, sort of pull their resources to focus on the behavioral aspects of 
uh, of uh, people who suffer from these diseases and what can be done to assist them by perhaps modifying those behaviors or, or um, changing those behaviors or providing support for behaviors that can't be changed. Um, and so this is where all those disciplines intersect to provide a, a complete picture of what can be done and how. Is that a, a fair summary? It is. It is. And so, you know, you find our work, um, the you know, people like me in this area, uh, working across an entire disease spectrum. So uh, we may be interested in, in prevention. Uh, we may be interested in testing and diagnosis. We may be interested in treatment and cure. And um, and there's roles to be played really for every disease, even diseases like a purely, really purely genetic disorder like Huntington's chorea. Uh, there are behavioral aspects to that, aside from its neurological you know, problems that the disease is characterized by. Uh, people living with, with Huntington's chorea and families that are affected by Huntington's chorea, uh, getting people, you know, to... Uh, uh, understanding better people's decisions around genetic testing for Huntington's Korea. All those things are um, behavior. I'm, I'm smiling because, you know, I know that uh, we're, you know, that your focus is on, on vaccination and having just come out of COVID. A lot of people certainly here in the United States are very familiar with Dr. Anthony Fauci. And he's really been the physician infectious disease doctor who has led the way on HIV here and perhaps the world since the beginning. But I think before COVID, he wasn't necessarily the most behaviorally minded person. His focus was so much on vaccines, getting a vaccine for HIV, while in the meantime, we were trying to do things behaviorally. Um, I think COVID might have actually opened his mind more to the challenges of human behavior. And COVID certainly opened my mind more to the necessity of a vaccine. So. I think that there's been some interplay be, between the purely medical perspective and the more behavioral perspective where there's there's a lot of overlapping ground there. That's a very good way to put it. And I've certainly seen that here in Australia where uh, compared to the US, there's a much higher trust in government. Uh, don't be, get me wrong, Australians are very cynical about a government and uh, making fun of whichever government in power is pretty much a national sport. So we, we don't have any illusions about it. But rather than seeing the government as our enemy, we sort of see the government as a, a sort of a rather bungling, somewhat incompetent ally um, that generally tries to do the right thing, even if it doesn't do it very well. So we don't need to fear it because if the government ever wanted to do something bad to us, we've we're pretty confident that they wouldn't have the technical ability to achieve its goals anyway. <laughs> so we, we've got a more comfortable relationship with, with our government. And as a result, there's a greater trust when it comes to issues of public health. And of course, it makes a difference that we have a, um, a universal healthcare system, which ties in well with the Australian national psyche, which is very community-minded. Uh, we have a concept that we call mateship, uh, which involves sort of looking after everyone. So public health is seen as very much a public responsibility rather than something you participate in as an individual on your own terms, which, which I think is seems to be more the the American way. 
so as a, as a result of that, we ended up with high rates of compliance with behavioural changes, social distancing and vaccination. Uh, we have dropped down, though. We Our booster rate is nowhere near what it should be. I think it's something around... 70, between 70 and 80% maybe for for second boosters um, or even first, no, first and second boosters. And as a result, we've, you know, seen a, quite a bit of an uptick. Also, too, some of our states reopened a bit too early and we so we saw a bit of a, a pushback um, from COVID as a result of that. But overall, I think we've, we've done pretty well. I think our our deaths per million are still quite competitive in global terms. But it's uh, it's very, very interesting to see how different cultures and different countries have responded from Europe to the US to Australia uh, to uh, Southeast Asia, for example, and and also the Asian subcontinent. It's been very different, uh, different approaches in, in many places. So let's get back to you then. Where did you study and what are your qualifications? So I received my um, doctorate at the University of South Carolina um, in 1990 uh, in uh, clinical community psychology. And that's where I got my, my PhD. Um, I'm a clinical psychologist, a clinical community psychologist. So a, an internship is required for this degree. And I did my clinical internship at the University of Mississippi Medical Center uh, in 1990. Uh, and then uh, from there, and that is really where I began my career focus on HIV and uh, my clinical internship. My first job that, uh, was at Loyola University of Chicago. Uh, and I, was, I then went to the Medical College of Wisconsin, just north of Loyola University of Chicago. So I started out my career in the southern part of the United States, and then migrated to the northern part, and I've been up there. Uh, I've been up here in the north since. Uh, in, in 2000, I moved from the Medical College of Wisconsin to uh, where I am now, to the University of Connecticut. And I think the thing that probably brings my my work most credibility are two things. One is my entire career has been supported by the National Institutes of Health here. Um, I've had National Institutes of Health funding for my research since 1993 seamlessly. And that's, a, that's a, something I'm proud of. And it's a, um, a very difficult to achieve that funding. So our program of research, I think, is reputable and incredible. Uh, and it has resulted in a good number of published papers in good peer-reviewed journals, um, hundreds. So those two things I think are um, externally validating of, 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 of being credible and, and sort of credentialed. If you have a field that you've specifically chosen to specialize in then, what, what would that be? HIV treatment, well, HIV prevention and treatment, the behavioral aspects. Uh, of HIV prevention and and treatment. That's really um, kind of a one-trick pony. How did you first become interested in science as a career? So um, my the path was uh, not straight. So I first uh, became interested in 
in, in clinical psychology, not really knowing exactly what I wanted to do. Um, I knew that I wanted to be a psychologist and I knew that I wanted to teach and do research. Um, and I knew that I was interested in clinical problems like mental health issues. Um, and and uh, in graduate school, I became interested in something though. And what I became interested in was actually forensic psychology. I, I became interested in how uh, the field of psychology intersects with the criminal justice system. And I was particularly interested in sexual offenders, uh, sexually violent men in prisons was what I did my dissertation work on. It's what I was really interested in. Um, and I went on my clinical internship in Mississippi to learn the treatment part of treating sex offenders. Because in graduate school, all I learned was the diagnosis and assessment and research part. I didn't really learn how to try to treat sexual offending populations. Uh, on that internship, just by chance, randomly, I ended up uh, doing a rotation with who became my mentor, Jeff Kelly, who was doing HIV prevention research. And at the time, it was um, very pioneering what he was doing, using uh, theories of behavior change and clinical psychology techniques to assist gay men in reducing their risk for HIV infection in the late 1980s and 1990s. So this was very cutting edge. And I, I, I was assigned to work with him for you know, one of the rotations on my clinical internship and he blew my mind. <laughs> and so I was mesmerized by it. I was like, this is remarkable because he was having real success in addressing a serious problem. There is not a lot of success in treating sex offenders. Uh, it's a it's a it's an area that just doesn't see a lot of successful cases, uh, and so I walked away and said, "This is what I want to do," um, and that's that's really how I became uh, really the I have the career that I have today. What advice would you give to someone who is considering a career in science? Find a good mentor. Um, you know, kind of follow your heart. What's really exciting to you? What 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 is? Uh, if you're interested in like getting into an area because it's well funded, or because it's uh, it's easy to publish, or all that is a fallacy. None of that. that that's not going to fuel um, a, a career in science because doing research itself is very punishing. Uh, it's uh, everyone's always telling you it's wrong. They're picking you apart. Uh, peer review is a contact sport. So the um, if you're going to derive meaning from your work, it has to be what you're really excited about, what is you're feeling passionate for. And that's the first thing is what really puts fire in your belly? What is it that gets you excited? Then find a person who's really good at it and 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 bring to them that passion, which will be pretty appealing and start to be mentored. I think that's probably um, the best advice I could give. Speaking of a peer review, I'm familiar with a, a what seems to be a popular stereotype and it seems to be in a running joke in academia that reviewer two is always the most brutal. Have you found that to be, have you found that to be the case? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it's true. Yeah. 
There's actually a, a Facebook group that I joined for a while because I wanted to learn more about peer review and the process thereof. And it was a whole bunch of academics. The whole, the whole group is just to make fun of reviewer two and post particularly egregious examples. Um, so I learned quite a bit just by reading that and chatting to the people there. But uh, yeah, it seems um, extraordinarily consistent. And the uh, the hatred for reviewer two was I, almost I, I, I think it's true. I think it's true. There are two things about that that I, you know, that that I would uh, add. One is um, there might be something to how uh, in the U.S. Uh, grants are assigned to reviewers that might just account somewhat for reviewer two being such a jerk. One is um, the, the way that well, the way that grants are assigned to reviewers is the first reviewer is responsible for very thoroughly reading the grant and providing an in-depth discussion and an in-depth review. Reviewer two is expected to hit the points that reviewer one doesn't hit. Just what adds to that? What, what is it and, and do you agree with reviewer two? And then reviewer three has the least responsibility. They're really called a discussant, a reader. And they're just supposed to make sure that nothing was left, left no stones were left unturned. So I think that reviewer one is better, more likely to understand what the hell you're trying to do. And reviewer three doesn't have much to say. So reviewer two is the one who kind of goes for you. I think that might be true in grants, but there's no explanation for why reviewer two on papers is always the bigger jerk. And it's true, but that's just kind of random, but it, reviewer, it is, it is, and then the second thing I'd say is, um, if you haven't seen all over YouTube, uh, the Hitler thing, have you seen the Hitler thing? It's hilarious. And um, and, it, and it's true to life is why it makes it so funny. Uh, so for listeners that don't know, there's a YouTube video that's dubbed of Hitler and his you know SS and all these people, but it's dubbed as researchers. And Hitler gets the grant reviews back. And he goes, it's <laughs> that so, is yeah, pretty yeah. <laughs> well, good to know that there is some some truth in I it. Think, and thanks for the I, insight. I, I, yeah. I think there may be some truth to it. So I want to briefly touch on social media because that's been quite an influence um across many fields of, of study and, and of education. I want to know if social media has affected the way that you communicate your knowledge and ideas, and if so, how? Yeah, so I've actually not. Um, well, it depends. So uh, social media is a is a powerful force, and like a lot of maybe any powerful force, it can be a force for good and it can be a force for bad. So I've been interested in how social media can be a force for bad by spreading misinformation and uh, incomplete truths uh, that can dissuade people from getting HIV tested, seeking HIV treatment, as well as vaccinations. This is something I've been interested in. It's not been a real central focus of my work, but I've done some work on social media as a sort of bad actor. And in terms of my own work and using social media to sort of uh, as a positive tool, perhaps, I haven't done a lot. I, I haven't really figured out how to use social media effectively without it being just sort of self-promoting. 
Uh, I think that you can do that. There's, I think, ways to do that. I'm just not figured it out for myself. But I wrote a book a while back on AIDS denialism. And AIDS denialism, uh, you know, is are people that uh, that that dispute that HIV causes AIDS, that dispute that AIDS is actually an, uh, a reality. And those that accept AIDS as a reality and even may think HIV sure causes AIDS, they may believe conspiracy theories that um, that HIV treatment is unnecessary, that it's uh, toxic, that it's a corruption of government scientists in collusion with uh, big pharma to poison people. And actually HIV treatments cause AIDS itself. So what happens is people get tested with this test that doesn't, that is invalid. Um, and they're told they have HIV, but they, it doesn't even really exist. And then they're immediately given antiretroviral therapy, which is toxic and causes AIDS. This is, uh, you know, obviously to any rationally thinking person, all bunch of malarkey, uh, but it has been very prominent and uh, particularly online and, and through websites and then social media. So I studied that a little bit and I did a book. I wrote a book about this because I thought it was interesting and important. Um, and I then created a blog to sort of be an anti-denialist blog. I've let it completely go. I don't keep up with it anymore. I don't even know if that blog exists but at the time, for about two or three years, it was a place where I could engage in um, anti-denialist promotion, basically, and worked with some other groups, like a group called AIDS Truth that was very successful in squelching a lot of the misinformation online uh, that AIDS denialists spread. Uh, I, I worked in, sort of in conjunction with some of those people. I, I believed at the time, and I believe still, that the um, the antidote for misinformation and conspiracy theories and falsehoods online is to have an even greater online presence of truths and facts and leveling with people uh, and, and being honest. Uh, if there's only a couple places that are providing that information, they will be beaten down by the, by the conspiracy theories and the denialists and the anti-science people. Uh, so science has to have a much more present and vocal advocacy for truth online. And and I, I, I wanted to be a part of that for a period of time. So the book that you wrote, uh, I believe, was published in 2009, and it's entitled Denying AIDS, Conspiracy Theories, Pseudoscience and Human Tragedy. Now, you've touched on this uh, to some extent, but if you could flesh out more fully, what prompted you to write this book? Okay, so the story goes like this. Um, I was aware of AIDS denialism, but I didn't pay any attention to it. Uh, pretty much like everybody else that I knew, they were seen as just sort of um, obsolete crazies that no one would listen to. And so I, like everybody else, ignored them. Me, Dr. Fauci, everybody else, we just ignored them and figured if you ignore them, they'll go away. Uh, they did not go away. What, what, what happened with me, though, was I edited a journal called AIDS and Behavior. 
It's a journal published by Springer Nature Science. It's a, it's a big publisher. It's a credible journal. And my job as editor is to assign papers to reviewers uh, to review for peer review. So I assigned this paper to a social scientist that I was familiar with her work. Uh, she worked on relationships and, um, uh, and uh, how relationships may impact health. Uh, and she's well known. Uh, she's published, incredible. So I signed her a paper on relationships, something or other to review. I got an email from her saying, I don't know how you got my name. I don't know why I'm on your list, but don't send me this stuff. I, I don't want to look at anything having to do with HIV. If you're not familiar with Dr. Peter Duesberg and his um, evidence that HIV doesn't even exist, you, sh you should probably become aware of that. And I don't want to ever hear from you again. I was shocked. I was really shocked. Uh, I looked her up uh, I, um, uh, beyond her university website, and she had done a book review for some esoteric group online in Facebook or something uh, on Peter Duesberg's book, Inventing AIDS. And and how she, she wrote about how, you know, he's a genius and he's uh, been ignored by the government because the government wants to keep fueling people uh, with this myth about AIDS so that they can, you know, keep the, the gravy train rolling and keep these universities getting all of those taxpayer dollars. And, uh, and yet these poor people that supposedly test HIV positive are given um, these drugs that are highly toxic um, and it kills them. And so we should be following Peter Duesberg, but no one listens to him because the government has suppressed him. And so I was pretty amazed. Uh, and so I thought if this woman who I thought was very intelligent, she's a professor at an esteemed university here uh, in the US. Um, and I was familiar with her work. It's it's published in good places, not having to do with, obviously with anything having to do with HIV, but on relationships. And she interacts with students and graduate students. And this is her beliefs. I I, I, I woke up and said, this is actually a real problem that there are these people and they actually have a voice and there may be people listening to them. Uh, and that's how I got interested. And I started to sort of talk to people and, and look at, look at what they were saying and um, who are these people and, uh, and, and I kind of found myself um, for at least a year or two, pretty immersed in their world and it's it's a dark place if you spend too much time really like interacting with them you can start i could i started to like well maybe there's some what maybe maybe they're not all completely wrong no they are they're all completely wrong so have you found much overlap then between HIV AIDS denialism and, for example, anti-vax ideology? Yeah, there are two sides to the same coin. And what and there are threads that sort of you know connect them clearly. One thread is um, is um, uh, political conservatism. In the United States, we would actually call it an extreme conservatism 
what at the time that I wrote the book would be called a uh, um, libertarian arm of, of the conservative movement. Very, very right wing. Uh, today, the, the the libertarian view, I don't even know if it still exists, it's been absorbed into this very far right wing mentality uh, that is really led by Donald Trump. When, when, when Donald Trump uh, sort of took over this right wing of the Republican Party to the degree to which he could become president, the libertarians sort of fell into that. Uh, and so uh, that's one thread. The, uh, in in Azenialism, there are clear connections between Azenialism and that right wing of the Libertarian Party. Then uh, another another sort of thread that connects them is not that's not unrelated is anti-science, which is a part of anti-government, uh, and so. Uh, you see the same anti-government, anti-science rhetoric in AIDS denialism as you do in uh, anti-vaxxers. Um, they use the same kind of communication tactics, the same kind of appeals. They rely more on anecdotes than facts. They rely on outdated science rather than new science. They cherry pick any kind of fact from science that might support their view and ignore everything else uh, and actually sweep away everything else. Um, and they are effective communicators. They have figured out how to use social media. They have figured out how to communicate um, with the masses in a persuasive way and raise doubts. They're very good at raising questions. I'm not I'm not really saying that vaccines don't work. And I'm not really saying that HIV doesn't cause AIDS, but it's a reasonable question, isn't it? I mean, are you that closed-minded where you can't be a little skeptical? And so that is the same, the same rhetoric. Um, they're also a bit cult-like in their thinking. So there are prominent voices in anti-vax like Andrew Wakefield, uh, and 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 um, and Robert Kennedy, who are um, charismatic and can be very persuasive, and there are people that just believe them. That is true in in AIDS denialism too. Peter Duisburg is very charismatic. Uh, he is a very likable, charismatic guy, um, and he's arguably brilliant. And so there are people. It doesn't you know it doesn't matter how outlandish the stuff that he said. And not just about HIV, but really what he was focused on was cancer. I mean, he's the guy who said there are no genetic bases for any cancer, none. Cancer is all cancers. And he's a cancer. That's his thing. HIV was just sort of a was sort of a side anecdote for him. He was a cancer researcher and uh, and completely went against the grain of established cancer science that tells you something about him and explains a bit about how his influence in HIV really did attract masses of people who and countries like South Africa who bought into it. So this actually quite conveniently brings me to my my next question. Uh, HIV AIDS denialists argue that they have many scientists on their side. 
who have produced robust research showing no causal connection between AIDS and HIV. And they say this research has been variously ignored or suppressed by mainstream scientists, but never actually refuted. What is your response to that claim? It's not true. It's just not true. So here's what you have. You have an AIDS, if you're AIDS denialism, you, you have some prominent reputable scientists earlier in their career who for whatever reason have become angry disgruntled old men one of them is a nobel prize laureate right so kerry mullis won a nobel prize for his development of pcr and pcr tests are central to medicine and he somehow, no one can explain this. I mean, he was an avid LSD user, but that doesn't seem to explain this. He 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 just turned on, on everything he ever did and everything that he ever stood for and all of the entity. It's not that he did research that refuted PCR. It's not like he used PCR to prove that HIV doesn't exist. He just says... Yeah, you know, HIV doesn't exist and you can't prove it with PCR. Uh, and and there's no explanation for it. The same thing with Peter Duisburg. Peter Duisburg in the beginning of his career was at the forefront of cancer research. He was a part of the Berkeley San Francisco groups of researchers that were identifying cancer causing genes in the 1960s. And in the 1970s, he wrote a, um, a paper in, for the National Academy in Science, of Sciences, which isn't peer-reviewed, but you have to be a member, which is very esteemed, where he disputed the role of any genetics at all. He basically refuted his life's work to that point and said, there's no genetic basis for any cancer. Oh, and by the way, this new virus, HIV, it doesn't cause any disease either. It's a passenger virus. People have it, people don't have it. It doesn't matter. It was a side note in that paper that got a lot of attention. In the broader context though, is he was refuting basically all of genetic science in the field of cancer, his field. Uh, but he was very credible and very prominent at the time. Why and how he turned, no one, can figure out. He he hated Robert Gallo, who was doing similar work on the East Coast. And they became like hated, they hated each other. And Robert Gallo is a controversial figure in and of himself. But some people think that maybe Duisburg turned on science to, to just sort of needle, you know, get at Gallo. Uh, no one really knows. It's sort of inexplicable, but it's not like they've done research. Now there, there is a um, uh, there. There have been some not credible scientists that have done some research that is complete garbage. So, for example, there's a guy who is um, uh, this guy uh, Grenfield, I think his name was. He um, I forget his name, but he did this experiment where he showed, he proved that HIV tests are invalid. 
Because when you draw a, blood, a sample of blood and you dilute it as the um, insert package tells you to, it may or may not detect HIV antibodies. But if you if you dilute it like three times more than you're supposed to, every test comes back positive. And 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 that and that was published in a pseudoscience journal. And so AIDS analysts will point to that as an experiment done by a real scientist published in a journal, you know, that shows that the test is invalid. David Rasnick is a that he's never done anything. He's never done anything in the world of science. But he he says, you know, he's an expert in protease. And there's and these protease inhibitors, they have nothing to do with HIV. And there's they couldn't it's just all crap. But he's they say it, and they're not real scientists. So you have this mix of real scientists that seem to lose their mind. And then you have this other not real scientists doing experimental research. Uh, and it gets all muddled up. And the AIDS denialists are very good at saying, see this research finding, see this expert, and they mix it all up. And it be, and 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 it's not that the lay public can easily be confused and who can anyone can become confused. Real hardcore scientists can scratch their head and go, huh? Because they're very good at sort of putting this in a blender, you know? So uh yeah, so I think that that sort of um, part of it, and then I'll just end the answer to your question with this. On In South Africa, the most notorious outcome of AIDS denialism has been in South Africa. It was sort of a perfect storm. It was the wrong president when HIV first emerged in South Africa. So HIV had been spreading through Central Africa throughout the 1980s and 1990s. But when apartheid fell and South African borders opened up and commerce and trade opened up and migrants from other countries started to come into a free South Africa, HIV spread into South Africa then. It was around the year 2000 or so. Um, so during the, during the Mandela years, 1990 to 1998, HIV had been spreading, but hadn't really, really become a big problem in South Africa. When his vice president became president, Tabo Mebeki, HIV AIDS was becoming a big problem in South Africa. And Tabo Mebeki was an AIDS denialist. And what we know about presidents is that they appoint presidential panels that reflect their, their beliefs. They're, they're not necessarily real scientific advisory groups as much as they are echo chambers for policy. And so uh, Mabeki's AIDS advisory panel uh, consisted of some of the world's most prominent uh, scientists who were South African, people like uh, um, Salim Karim Abdul. One of the world's most prominent AIDS scientists was on that panel. I think Glenda Gray was on that panel. Uh, these are some of the world's most esteemed HIV scientists. And there was an equal mix of AIDS denialist scientists, including David Rasnick and Peter Duesberg. And Mabeki famously said, my, my doctor says HIV does not cause AIDS. My other doctor says HIV AIDS, uh, HIV does cause AIDS. These are two highly credible, respectable doctors. Who's to say which one I should believe? And so 
that is the fundamental problem. It's and what I describe in AIDS in denying AIDS, I still believe, which is people confuse um, credentials with credibility. When I introduced myself, I was very careful to tell your listeners what makes me, I think, credible. I think what makes me credible is my establishment in the scientific world, not my degree, not my credential. Peter Duisburg has credential, but not credibility. What the AIDS analyst would say is, see, he admits it. What He has a voice because he's funded by the National Institutes of Health, because he makes it through peer review, because he's a part of that conspiracy. Yeah, it's a, vi- a vicious cycle. You can't, you can't undo that ball of thread. And this is the sleight of hand that they use, not just AIDS denialists, but uh, anti-vaxxers and other people who support pseudoscience and, and take an anti-science position. They use this sleight of hand where they say, here's one opinion, here's another opinion. And the, the assumption, sometimes it's stated, but typically it's just implied or left hanging. It's implied that these opinions are of equal merit. And just because we have two opinions from loud people, uh, we must assume they are both of equal merit. Therefore, oh, well, that means we can choose either one arbitrarily. Now, there's a mass of logical fallacies that have just been committed in in that train of thought. That's right. As you say, firstly, not all opinions are credible and, and not all opinions are of equal worth. Obviously, the people need to be qualified, but they need to be credible and they need to have demonstrated research to to back up their views. And a a scientific opinion isn't a normal opinion. It's meant to be backed by science. It's not just something that someone believes very strongly. So we need to focus more on the science rather than the the opinion part. That's right. And And you have to to be able to trust uh, there is a level of trust involved. There's one other AIDS analyst that I didn't mention that in this context is really worth mentioning, and his name is Henry Bauer. I think he's still around. I'm not sure. But Henry Bauer is a professor of chemistry at the university, um, a very esteemed university here, the University of uh, Virginia Tech University in Virginia, Virginia Polytechnic University. And he wrote a book that used all of these data from epidemiological studies to prove that HIV cannot be the cause of AIDS. And it is mind-bogglingly inaccurate and a real a real misuse. But if you heard Henry Bauer talk, you could go, wait, hey, hang on a minute. And if you looked at his book, you might go, hey, yeah, hang on a minute. But then when you look at Henry Bauer and like what he's done with his career up until he got involved in HIV, He teaches chemistry at Virginia Tech, but does not do research. And his research has been in areas of, let's just say, um, the fringes. So he's published papers on the evidence for uh, UFOs, for unidentified flying objects being aliens. He's published papers on the existence, why we should not just accept that there is no Loch Ness Monster that the sightings of the Loch Ness Monster actually have credibility behind them. And when you really analyze um, the climate and the, the, uh, you know, the conditions of the environment of Loch Ness, and you put that together with the eyewitness testimonies, uh, it's extremely reasonable to think that there is such a thing as Loch Ness Monster. So he's been on the fringe. He was the editor of a journal called Scientific Explorations, 
which is a pseudoscience journal. So you don't have to look real far to, to see these scientists uh, as really, are they really scientists? And you don't have to be a, um, a scientist yourself to see that there's more than questionable people involved here. And people need to be reminded that just because there are two opposing positions, it doesn't mean you now have carte blanche to arbitrarily choose the position that best suits you. Uh, you need to make a decision on which one you choose based on available evidence, on the robustness of the research behind it. Your job is to determine which one is more credible and which one most closely comports with the evidence we have available. You can't just say, well, there are two opinions and I'm just going with this one. That's that's not re how reality works. That's right. Well, and, and that is the third part of, of the book title. So we've talked about conspiracy theories. We've talked about pseudoscience, and that's where the human tragedy comes in. So why I got particularly interested in this was because if you listen to the AIDS denialists and you're this woman who was, you know, this university and writing a book review, it's like entertainment. I Who cares if she believes this? It's not harmful. What... When I became concerned was that when people living with HIV, when I test HIV positive and I get online and I look for information about what do I do now, and I see this website that says, don't worry, HIV doesn't even cause AIDS. That science is really a bunch of money-making, you know, corruption, the government just, again, trying to control you and lock you up with poison and that's what will give you AIDS. Do I want to hear that? Or do I want to hear, well, HIV is a virus that causes AIDS and you should seek care like right away. And there might be some things that doctors can do. Back then there might be, now there are, but back then in the nineties, there might be something that doctors can do to help you. Uh, and you should refrain from trying to, you know, do any behaviors that could spread you know, it's a, you know, people saw this rightfully so in the 90s as a death sentence. Uh, it was an existential crisis. And when my brother tests HIV positive and I get online, what can I do to help him? Or when, you know, I test HIV positive, I get online to see what do I need to do? Who would I listen to? And so they had a real following of vulnerable people. Uh, and that's the human tragedy part. The same thing with the anti-vaxxers. Who cares if some person living in the middle of nowhere who never come in contact with another person is an anti-vaxxer or not? Who, it doesn't. Who cares? But when people who have children to vaccinate and people are making a decision, they have their own questions. They're just not sure. They're not real comfortable necessarily with foreign things being injected into their arm. They may get online and seek out information. And it's they see these two opposing views, and it is exactly what you're saying. You have to be much more critically thinking about who is saying what, not to choose the thing you necessarily want to hear. There are inconvenient truths that can save lives. You mentioned uh, Dr. Robert Gallo earlier. I want to touch on him briefly because his work is at the core of what seems to be a very cherry-picked claim by 
HIV AIDS denialists who say there have been many cases of AIDS which did not involve HIV. Now, they cite research from Gallo uh, saying that he allegedly found no traces of AIDS in a number of HIV patients. And they also cite various news reports and scientific papers from 1983 onwards, which is when I believe this this sort of research came to light that's right, that's and right. these these reports and papers discuss a condition called non-HIV AIDS so I wonder if you can sort of untangle this for me does non-HIV AIDS actually exist and if not how do we explain cases of AIDS which appear to have no corresponding case of HIV yeah so what it is, is it's sort of a exploitation of words. That's that's what that is. There's two things going on there. One is uh, something that AIDS anonymous really like to do, and I believe that anti-vaxxers like to do too, which is to go back to the days when we just didn't know anything and say, see, see. And, 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 and you know, 1983, 1984, 1985 in HIV research, um, you might as well be putting, you know, uh, you might as well be putting leeches on people to draw out the infection. I mean, it's the real dark ages. And, you know, and so there, there is this um, sort of uh, nostalgic kind of thing. And, and, and how many anti-vaxxers still look to Andrew Wakefield, who's been completely uh, discredited? So, yeah, same kind of thing. So what the what the deal is with what you're describing though is that there's a it's sort of a, an exploitation of words. HIV is a virus and it has been identified, it has been isolated, it has met those Koch postulates that you know does a does a does an an agent actually cause disease? HIV is a virus; it exists and it causes disease. And there are thousands of studies. There's 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 a body of work that clearly, clearly proves that. When HIV, the virus, enters our bodies, it starts to take over our immune system. And the outcome of that, after if you don't do anything to stop it, after eight to 10 years is our immune systems collapse. And when our immune systems collapse, we become vulnerable to all kinds of different diseases that people with healthy immune systems can ward off. So, when a person has HIV, they've tested HIV positive, and they um, have HIV detected in their system, and their immune system collapses, they have AIDS. Now, are there people whose immune systems collapse and don't have HIV? Yes, there are. There are other uh, immune disorders, and there are other conditions. Uh, for example, extensive cancer chemotherapy that can really impact a person's ability to fight disease. And they can get quite sick from something that a person with a healthy immune system uh, can fight off. They don't have HIV though. Do they have AIDS? No, they don't. Because AIDS is actually acquired immune deficiency syndrome. And it can be acquired from multiple factors, but really it's been reserved only for people that have HIV. So there is this thing about HIV, its end point of its disease process causing immune collapse that is defined as AIDS. 
So someone can have AIDS and not have HIV. Yeah, but you shouldn't call it AIDS. You should call it, you know, a, immunocompromised. You should call it immune dysfunction. You should call it something else because AIDS is in the nomenclature connected to HIV. Can someone have HIV and never develop AIDS? Yes, they can. So there are people that are called slow progressors. And back before 1996, slow, there were people who never really progressed to AIDS, who had been tested positive for HIV way before 10 years from that. And for a multiple factors, some of which are not completely understood even today, they never developed AIDS. And, and, and now, because the treatments are so effective, there are a lot of people walking around that have HIV infection and don't develop AIDS. And some of them are non-progressors, but most of them are suppressed HIV patients because of antiretroviral therapy. So HIV causes AIDS uh, and, the, and it's a direct connection in the nomenclature. Someone can have a collapsed immune system, but if they don't have HIV, we shouldn't call it AIDS. So the bottom line is you can have HIV without having AIDS, but if you have AIDS, you also have HIV. There is no way to have AIDS proper without HIV. That's right, uh, except you can have, you know, immune disorder, other immune disorders. They just should not be called AIDS. And if you go back to 1983, 1985, 1986, 1987, that, there was a lot of confusion about this. I mean, the, 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 um, the, the term AIDS, acquired immune deficiency syndrome, you know, famously uh, came late in, in this, really. Uh, it was first called GRID, gay-related immune deficiency. And there were all kinds of other names. And finally, there there were enough cases where they said, we need a name for this. Uh, and so uh, if you go back, my view is if you go back before 1990, anything you see that has to do with HIV has to be considered in its context. Between 1990 and 2000, the science was very good, but the treatments weren't clear yet. The testing was very good, but the treatments weren't clear yet. But from 1996, certainly 2000 to today, it's all very clear. The, the disease progression, the patho, what's called pathogenesis, how HIV causes disease and AIDS and death is very clear. How the tests work and which tests work and how they work, very clear. And the treatment, how it works, when it works, and what it takes for it to work, very clear. Yeah, this is a, a common theme, again, I found with anti-vaxxers. They'll point to some research and they'll say, see, ha have a look at this, you know, this this particular disease and this its relationship with this particular vaccine. Uh, you know, it's nowhere near as clear cut as people are making out. And then you look at it and you go, well, hang on a second. This is from the 70s or the or the 80s or the 90s or, you know, when there was only a, a, there was only one vaccine for this disease. It was still very new or, or they were still trying to formulate a vaccine for this disease. This is this is old stuff. Why can't you why can't you cite any new stuff, any recent stuff, any stuff from from just last year, for example, because there isn't any. There's no modern right. research that supports That's these conclusions. Right. And I remember in, in the early 80s um, when AIDS was first emerging and it was, you know, it was taking the world by storm because there was so little was known about it. 
people weren't quite sure how to test for it, uh, how to treat it. It was widely regarded as a death sentence, which it pretty much was because we didn't have the uh, the treatments and the and the drugs available that can actually deal with the symptoms and and keep people alive for longer. So it was just an absolute maelstrom of, of uh, you know, lack of information and lack of new drugs. And in the middle of it all, the scientists doing their best to work out what was going on and what they could do about it. And terms, as you say, terms changed, approaches changed. A lot of this change was quite rapid. And public advisory notices as well changed, you know, on on a, a almost a yearly basis while they were trying to figure it out. And this is what we would expect. This is a case of seeing science in action, doing what it's supposed to do, responding as best it can uh, in light of the best available evidence at the time. And if it's change, if it changes, that's because more evidence has come to light and greater understanding has been achieved. And that's how science works. It might look messy. It might even be messy sometimes, but it works. And just because it can take a while doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with it or, or that it's invalid. This is just how science progresses. And and it's very dishonest of people to go all the way back to, say, 1983 and say, oh, what about this research and that research at a time when the science on this issue wasn't even fully fleshed out. People were still working on things and trying to formulate tests and this kind of thing. So yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And your, your answer has definitely clarified that. And it sort of brings me to the third section of your book where you cover AIDS pseudoscience. Cause of course, during that early period when people didn't know much about it, there were of course plenty of snake oil salesmen who were very happy to provide answers that people wanted to hear and provide solutions that they claimed would would solve the problem. And of course they're, they're still doing it today because pseudoscience is a huge money spinner. Uh, what are the three most common forms of AIDS pseudoscience and how do we know that they're wrong? So I think they're the three sort of most, you know, three different big pseudoscience problems in AIDS analysis. <clears throat> One is proof that HIV exists and uh, and that it causes disease. And uh, and so in that in that sort of genre, um, there's a misuse of early micrographs. There's a misuse of Gallo's early work um, and the and the scientific misconduct problems that he had in his lab. There's uh, uh, the confusion uh, uh, in those early years where no one knew anything. Uh, everybody was wrong. That that AIDS denialists put you know put their hands around and say, "See, uh, we don't really know that HIV is not uh, that HIV exists." It's never been purified. That's something they like to say and looked at under a micrograph without all these other proteins. And so uh, whether or not the virus actually exists is more than questionable when there's really no evidence. There are people that have AIDS that never had HIV and people that have HIV. There are people that get tested and well, I'm gonna leave testing as a second thing. And so the sort of patho, the pseudopathogenesis, the uh, pseudoscience behind uh, HIV as a virus that causes AIDS is one area. Then there's no research to support what they say. The pseudoscience is really this sort of 
melding together of um, cherry picked bindings from the early days. Uh, and, and there is sort of a, a propaganda machine behind this, and I should try to remember to mention that. The second area of pseudoscience, though, I would say is the testing pseudoscience. I've already mentioned, you know, some of the fake research that's been done. There are famous cases of, of people like Christine Majori, who tragically died of AIDS. Um, Christine Majori is a, one of the most prominent AIDS denialist voices in the 90s. Um, and uh, she, she claims, and it's probably true, that she tested HIV positive, and then she tested HIV negative, and then she tested HIV positive, and then she tested HIV negative. And so how can you trust the test? There's a whole pseudoscience behind HIV testing uh, that, that involves fake experiments, like I mentioned, that involves um, the, the misuse of tests that were tested but didn't work while ignoring the data for the tests that are proved and do work. There, there are false positive rates for HIV tests, just there are for all tests. There are false negative rates for HIV tests, just like there are for uh, uh, all tests. And so um, the pseudoscience of testing will uh, capitalize on those acceptable levels of false causes and false negatives. So test the pseudoscience of testing. And then the third area of pseudoscience is um, the pseudoscience of treatment. Uh, and and what, what, what happens with pseudoscience of treatment is they look back again to the 80s and early 90s when HIV treatments were bad. There were very few and they were very toxic. It was the dark ages of HIV treatment. Scientists were trying to figure out what would work. And they were basically throwing everything that they could think of at HIV because there has never been a virus that has caused disease in a human being like HIV. There are in other animals, HIV is very similar to feline leukemia um, and, a, and an immune deficiency virus in cats that can cause a disease, an immune system breakdown that looks like AIDS in people, um, but there's never been any real scientific effort to solve those animal viruses. So when, when, when there was a human retrovirus involved, HIV is a retrovirus, it, and it was the first really uh, identified retrovirus that causes disease in human beings, they just didn't know what to do. So they tried all these treatments that they thought might work and it was really hit and miss. And when it seemed like something worked, they overdosed people. So it's very toxic. All those things are true for the late 1980s and the early, even the early 1990s. But by 1996, they just weren't true and they haven't been true since. So the pseudoscience of treatment misuses and exploits the early days of unknown and blends in conspiracy theories around, you know, every time the pharmaceutical industry puts forward a drug that's approved and then the approval has to be withdrawn because the evidence just should, it shouldn't have been approved. Every time there's a mistake like that, and those mistakes happen, the AIDS analysts go, See, just because it's approved by the national health system doesn't mean anything because this is approved, then it's not approved. And so they approve these drugs to make money. 
The pseudoscience of treatment uh, is the third area. And then I should just mention that all of these things are amplified by a, um, a journalistic arm to AIDS denialism. So you have these pseudoscientists and these gone crazy prominent scientists, and they're amplified by these people who call themselves journalists. Like this guy who's recently died in, in Canada, this guy, David Crow. He was a freelance journalist. Uh, there have been a number of these people who find it interesting and quirky and they kind of buy into it and they're like, oh, uh, they hop on this bandwagon and 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 they really help amplify uh, what the pseudoscientists have to say. They report on those scientific facts that everybody ignores. They review Peter Duesberg's book that should be paid attention to. Uh, so that's a very important part of asenialism is the, um, the the journalism. So in the fifth section of your book, which discusses the politics of HIV AIDS denialism, you discuss the problem in South Africa with Becky uh, deliberately playing down the HIV crisis and cherry picking his own conclusions from his own hand-picked scientists to suit himself. I've never quite understood what his motivation was because clearly there was a, a national health crisis in his country being caused by this virus and it, he seemed determined to deny it outright. What was in it for him? What did he gain by doing this? What was the motivation for doing this? I don't think there's motivation. <clears throat> I think there's two parts to this. Nobody, first of all, nobody knows. So I don't know. Nobody knows. He won't talk about it. Um, I'm familiar. I'm I've become aware of someone who's currently working on a documentary of uh, of the whole South Africa denialism. You know, Mbeki, and and their hope of getting an interview with him is like zero so he he ain't talking uh but his views have been clear i think i my here's my take and i was working in south africa during the end of mabeki's time but i'm not a south african and i'm sort of a you know a pedestrian's view on this but here's my take my take is that he is not a stupid man that he's a smart guy but he's one of those people who thinks he's smarter than he is. And so when HIV started to um, migrate down into South Africa, Mandela was president and he was vice president. But Mandela could not, he ignored it and he apologized later for ignoring it. But Mandela was building a country. I mean, he had to create an entire health system to treat, you know, 90% of South Africans who never had health care. So, Mandela had a pretty full plate. And so he wasn't necessarily paying attention to a coming problem. He was dealing with rebuilding a country. By the time Mbeki became president, the country had been set on a path by Mandela and HIV was becoming a huge problem. So my take is that Mbeki started to look for answers to figure it out for himself. And so he got on the internet and he did not separate the science from the pseudoscience. He didn't separate out the Duesbergs 
from the Fauci's. And they all look like doctors to him. And he's a smart guy, so he can tell, he can figure this out. And so uh, one of the more remarkable parts about this was he ignored, uh, or he equally weighted what South African scientists were saying and believed what European and American scientists over his own scientists, which is tragic because his scientists were scientists and the Europeans and Americans that he brought in were all denialists. Um, and it seems like he was not really motivated as much as duped that they convinced him that he was just duped. Uh, and then he became entrenched in his beliefs that he wasn't open to changing his mind. He had been too public to do that. Um, and so he kind of dug himself into a hole is, is my view. Uh, and he was incapable of saying I was wrong. He had gone too far. Um, so I, I think that, you know, I can tell you that the parallels between Mbeki's AIDS and Trump's COVID are remarkable. They're the kind of thing, I, you know, that sort of tease a second book because, <laughs> because it's remarkable how, how Trump aligned himself with, you know, pseudo doctors who said what he wanted them to say. He, you know, well, you know, COVID's not so bad. Uh, you know, people don't have to wear a face mask. You know, um, it, it, the best thing to do is to reach herd immunity. Uh, and vaccines, too little, too late. Don't worry about a vaccine. And so all of these sort of crazy COVID stuff that happened in the United States around Trump are a, a, a complete mirror of uh, of the Mebeki years in HIV. And their end is the same. Mebeki left his office in disgrace and the next president embraced science and opened the door to treatment. And, and, and South Africa is a different place now than it was in the early 2000s. Trump was defeated and his, and his uh, you know, successor opened the doors uh, and there are still people that follow Trump, but in terms of this government embracing science and in terms of clear communication and, uh, and, and promoting vaccine and increase all of it, it's like a different world. The post-Trump post post COVID America is like post-Mebeki HIV South Africa. It's remarkable. And it tells you, it's sort of, for me, anecdotal evidence that the, the um, bad players are the same bad players. So the final section of your book is entitled Getting Out of Denialism. What advice would you give to someone who wants to help fight against denialism and change the minds of denialists? Well, it depends on who they are and what you mean by change the minds of denialists. So if you're talking about scientists and people working in the health field and public health, they can play a real role by helping to clearly communicate medical facts to the lay public and doing that in a prominent mass media sort of way, like through social media. I'm a big believer that a loud voice on the internet can be very attractive if there's no other voices. But if they, but crazy talk looks crazy when there's rational thought all around it. Um, but crazy talk can look rational 
when there's no rational talk. Uh, and so, you know, the, the people in health-related fields and science can play a very big role just by being vocal. Um, and and I, I'm, I pretty much believe that there are people who are very vulnerable to misinformation, conspiracy theories, and pseudoscience. And they 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 can be um, persuaded by denialists very easily, but they're also reasonable people, and they can they can be um, uh, persuaded by science, and they can recognize, yeah, that can't be right. I mean, you know, let's face it: if you live in the United States today and you say those vaccines were developed too fast, I don't trust the government, I don't trust that National Institutes of Health. And they happen too fast. It just was too fast. I don't think those are safe. A rational voice that says, well, you know, you know, three quarters of the country has been vaccinated. I've been vaccinated six times. And, you know, it seems like I'm okay. And I've actually never gotten COVID. And no one in the United States, no one is dying of COVID today that has been vaccinated. If there are voices saying that, it becomes sort of like, yeah, that makes sense. It's not like I'm the first person to get this vaccine that I wouldn't be comfortable being the first person. Well, you're not anymore. You know, that there, uh, rash, I believe, I kind of have to believe that rational, clearly communicated truth can prevail. But if you're interested in changing the mind of the denialists, the Peter Duesbergs, the Henry Bowers, the Table Mebeckis, that I believe is a losing cause. So if people only learn three things from your book, what would you want them to be? Um, the three things, if you read Denying AIDS and you walked away from it, what would I want you to walk away from? One is these people, AIDS denialists, exist. They can easily fool you they can be easily mistaken with credible scientists so think hard about who you're listening to and look at their credibility not just their credentials that's that's one thing so they exist they haven't gone away and they still have a, a message that is um, would be welcome to hear um that's one thing another thing is they're not unique so AIDS denialists are very much like anti-vaxxers. They're much like anti-climate, um, you know, climate denialists. Uh, they all share in common a uh, rhetoric and communication techniques that have been well-documented by social scientists and, uh, and public health people. Uh, in very good published journals, they, they show that they are more alike than different. And so, you know, learning a lot about how HIV causes AIDS can teach you a lot about other infectious diseases. Learning a lot about how to prevent HIV can teach you a lot about preventing other infectious diseases. Learning a lot about AIDS denialists can help you identify and deal with anti-vaxxers, science denialists, climate deniers, et cetera. Now, that would be two. And the, uh, and the third, I think, is maybe related to the first, which is the best strategy for dealing with denialism in any of these areas is not to ignore them. Uh, it is not, they're not going away. 
even after they're dead, because the internet is a preservation hall. Uh, they 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 will always be there, uh, and they will still be talking about those studies from 1985. And so uh, I would say AIDS denialists should not be ignored, uh, and uh, and and that would be true for all the other anti-science activists, whether they be anti-vaxxers or whether they be, um, you know, name it. Dr. Kalishman, this has been a really fascinating and enjoyable interview. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciated it. It's been a joy. Um, really, a really, really enjoyed being able to talk about denying it and its related problems with you.